The Supreme Court hears oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the Supreme Court case that could overturn Roe versus Wade. Sotomayor, Kagan, and the Jackson attorney expose themselves for the lying abortion hacks that they truly are. And MSNBC loses their mind over the court's hearing and compares pro-lifers to segregationists. No surprise there. Is Roe v. Wade ready to topple? And will the Supreme Court work up the courage to finally strike down this evil decision? We'll examine this all, but we're in for a wild ride either way. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. I'm a little bit late on the coverage of this simply because uh, we've been really busy and I've finally finished traveling. So thank you for being patient. I know many people have wanted a full uh, in-depth commentary and coverage of the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Supreme Court hearing oral arguments and the type of arguments that were made because many conservatives were, I think... Um, rightly encouraged with many of the justices skepticism in striking down the Mississippi law. We're going to get to all of that if you have not been um, in tune with and uh, bring yourself up to speed on the Supreme Court case out of Mississippi. But first, if you like this show and you want to hear more great content and commentary, uh, head on over to YouTube, subscribe if you want to watch the show, or support us on patreon.com forward slash unaborted. We really appreciate that. Uh, that helps us increase the production value, number of guests we bring on, in-person guests, and in the near future, moving into 2022, um, in-person and street type of interviews, really taking these ideas we articulate on this show and taking them into a conversational format to challenge people's deeply held assumptions, to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. We really appreciate that. Um, and um, give us a rating and review. <laughs> it helps us reach more people as well with such a, a narrow focus of the show, um, but all the more important because of the weightiness of the issue your, uh, your commentary and reviews really helps the show show up in the charts as well. So this Mississippi, um, they've been calling it an abortion ban, but it's not, right? It's, it's a 15-week abortion ban. It's called the Gestational Age Act, and it would ban abortions at 15 weeks. This um, case was from last year or the year before. Uh, of course, all the abortion behemoth legal groups all sued and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. So on December 1st, just the other day, they had their hearings and they're expected um, to provide a decision, obviously sometime in the spring of 2022 or early summer. They have to release their decision by sometime in June. And I watched the entire thing, and uh, so the, you didn't have to. <laughs> and we pulled some of the most substantive um, moments and clips from the hearings uh, to really break it down and examine it. But this would be a functional overturning of Roe versus Wade, right? And that's the big point, is because the Supreme Court, through Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, both decided in 1973, by the way, many people don't know the Doe versus Bolton decision, the court made it clear that states could not ban abortions um, after what they called fetal viability, a stupid subjective term that means when the baby can survive outside the womb. But if you're a smart person, you're probably thinking, but Seth, that always changes as medical advance, uh, advancements occur that make the baby able to survive outside the womb at earlier and earlier stages. Exactly. That's why it's a stupid um, uh, term and, and way to apply 
when states can ban abortion uh, throughout the country. And so Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 91-92 reaffirmed the ruling in Roe. And now this is the third, if you count Roe versus Wade, major abortion um, ruling case at the Supreme Court that presents an opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade. And when we had Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that was a huge letdown, of course, for the pro-life movement after working so many years legislatively and politically and culturally to overturn that wicked decision. Now, of course, it goes without saying that if you overturn Roe versus Wade, that is not a federal ban on abortion. It simply sends it back to the states and allows states to decide. So if states have pre-Roe versus Wade state laws that ban abortion, then abortion would then be illegal in that state. Um, and let me just make the point, because this needs to be said, since some pro-lifers think that overturning Roe v. Wade um, is the end of things, and there are squishy conservatives and pro-lifers who kind of take the federalist approach. We have a federalist system of government, man. Hey, states can do what they want. So it's not that Roe versus Wade was wrong because it labeled humans non-persons. It was wrong because it took the sovereignty out of the states to make those decisions. And so you have some squishy pro-lifers who actually would be satisfied with overturning Roe v. Wade and then stopping and allowing states to decide. That's not just, okay? Just as it would not have been just to allow states to uh, enforce segregation, and in fact, we expected, and the federal government did step in to ensure that states were not segregating people. Uh, and so a, the true end of justice would be a federal ban on abortion or a recognition that the pre-born's right to life was already in the Constitution as the rights that all persons have, and they should have never been labeled a non-person in the first place. Okay, but it would be a huge victory because it would immediately save hundreds of thousands of lives. It would allow states to ban abortion, um, and, and that is a necessary step towards the ultimate goal of banning abortion across the country. Just as a reminder of who we're talking about, okay? Yes, we're talking about mothers and families, but the focus is the baby. The focus is the child. The point is that the child has a natural right to life in virtue of being a human being. You either have natural rights or you don't. They don't come in varying degrees. You either have it or you don't. And the best way to determine who has natural rights, starting with the right to life, is by ensuring that it's grounded in our human nature. When do we get a human nature? From the moment we become human. When do we become human? The moment of conception, that's the point. So this is about a child, a human being, a person at 15 weeks that Mississippi is saying we don't want to murder. You should not tell us that we cannot protect this child. So at 15 weeks, the baby has fingers, toes, eyelids, eyebrows, eyelashes, fingernails, hair, teeth, bones, a functioning nervous system, and fully developed genitals. Her heart is beating roughly 25 quarts of blood every day. She can make complex expressions, respond to touch, suck her thumb, and yawn. And in every state, you can kill that baby. But by 15 weeks old, the baby is too large to fit inside a suction catheter tube, so they must be killed through a D&E abortion, a dilation and evacuation, which involves tearing a baby's arms and legs from her torso before crushing her skull. That's the person we're talking about that Mississippi is trying to protect. And it would be a truly wonderful thing indeed to have Roe versus Wade overturned and have the Mississippi gestational AJAC 15-week abortion ban stand. That's what we're praying for. That's what we've been working for towards for a long time. Now, let me just give you the actors at play here really briefly before we jump in to the arguments. And we're actually going to welcome our friend Dr. Brent Bowles, our favorite, our favorite OBGYN, back onto the show to go through some of the most substantive portions of the hearings because of how easily these hacks lie. Their lies flow like the blood of the babies they murder. 
Um, and those that was primarily true with Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, as well as the Jackson attorney um, suing the state of Mississippi. So we have Scott Stewart, who's the Mississippi Solicitor General, and he made the case for the Mississippi abortion ban. I didn't include any clips of him speaking. Um, I wanted to focus more on the lies and discrediting them and in so doing making our own pro-life case. Uh, but I actually wasn't super satisfied with Scott Stewart. I thought he focused too much on the sovereignty federalist argument that, that the primary wrongness of Roe v. Wade was not that it murders babies and calls them non-persons, but that it took it out of the hands of the states. That's not the primary reason why it's wrong. So I, I think they could have got a better lawyer. But then there's Ju Julie Rickleman. She's from the Center for Reproductive Rights. She is the lawyer for the Jackson Women's Health Organization against the state of Mississippi. Later, there was Elizabeth Prelegar, the US Solicitor General, and then, of course, all of the Supreme Court justices. So we're going to break down the oral arguments and, and hearing. So um, we want to welcome on Dr. Brent Bowles, um, who's a, uh, been delivering babies for 30 years. He is an OBGYN. He is a member of the American Associations of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And we actually did an episode a while back that you should go listen to, where we talked about the conflict of interest that Elena Kagan poses to the Supreme Court. She should really recuse herself from any case on abortion. Um, essentially, before she was a Supreme Court justice, Elena Kagan um, worked behind the scenes with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, to rewrite um, when they thought partial birth abortions were um, uh, necessary to change their terminology from what was previously said, which was that partial birth abortions were never necessary, to partial birth abortions are a sometimes necessary procedure to save the life of the mother, so that Bill Clinton could have the science on his side when he pointed to ACOG saying sometimes partial birth abortions are necessary so he could veto the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. Um, and we went through the whole history of that. Elena Kagan is a real piece of work. But it was actually Sotomayor who was the most disgusting from these hearings. So, Dr. Brent Bowles, why don't you uh, join us on the show today to talk through uh, all of these ridiculous arguments. We were texting back and forth about um, some of these claims that certainly some of the justices were making. Um, but firstly, I want to get your reaction um, to, to the hearing and your sort of just your high-level thoughts from listening to, to this, this seminal uh, hearing that could overturn Roe. Thank you, Seth, and it's good to be with you today. Um, I wanted to watch the hearing live, but I've had to watch bits and pieces of it since then because I was at work delivering babies the morning that uh, the hearing was taking place. Well, there you go. <laughs> Several that morning. It was a busy day. Um, the hearing wasn't surprising. Um, Justice Thomas did his, you know, what we expected him to do. He really challenged the attorneys to tell him where in this Constitution we have um, the right to abortion. Um, I saw a post today from another pro-life activist who was quoting someone else that I don't, uh, whose name I didn't recognize, but they made the point that um, the left wants to look at the Constitution as a living document, but a fetus isn't alive. Um, <laughs> that's right. And that, that's just, it was the same nonsense uh, right. the whole way through the, the pro-abortion side. Um, Justice Sotomayor just embarrassed herself and the court. Uh, yeah, Kagan really wasn't did. much better, although she wasn't as abrasive as Sotomayor. Um, so let's talk just, about Sotomayor, because um, she, she was, I think, the most vocal. She spoke the most. Um, and you could tell her deep commitment to abortion. 
Um, and uh, so we're going to go in order here from the beginning of the hearing uh, chronologically through with the most, uh, I think, important clips that, that I pulled. Um, for you guys listening, this will actually be a very important and helpful episode, okay, because we're going to put this on YouTube and try to get it a larger reach as well because this is, this is what's hot right now, right? This is all everyone cares to talk about because every time abortion's compromised, the left sets aside every other peripheral political issue to unite to protect abortion. So all the coverage for some time now will be abortion. And we want this to get out there um, to go very meticulously through the lies of these people um, and make the case for life and the case for overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, and uh, Dr. Brent Bowles, you are uniquely positioned to provide uh, clarity and facts and logic and the science <laughs> to the claims that were made in this hearing. So let's start with Sotomayor. Uh, in this first clip here, um, she talks about, directed towards um, Scott Stewart, the Mississippi's Solicitor General, which is who most of these comments from the um, left wing of the court were directed to about how the science he was citing regarding the preborn's ability to feel pain is basically just a bunch of bunk and it's just a minority of kooky scientists who believe that. So let's play this clip and talk about it. Obviously, the, under the Daubert standard, the minority of people, a gross minority of doctors who believe fetal pain exists before 24, 25 weeks. It's a huge minority, and one not well-founded in science at all. So um, I don't see how that really adds anything to the discussion, that a small fringe of doctors believe that pain could be experienced before a cortex is formed. Does it mean that there's been that much of a difference since Casey? So... According to Sotomayor, Dr. Brent Bowles, it's just a huge minority of people who believe that fetal pain exists before 24 and 25 weeks, and therefore such uh, kooky uh, right-wing conspiracy science doesn't add anything to the conversation since Casey. Um, you uh, <laughs> made a, a great comment when we were talking uh, off-air that Sotomayor seems to be the only one missing a cortex here. Um, so as an OBGYN and someone familiar with the science, um, what is uh, Sotomayor getting wrong here? Well, what is she getting right? It, there, there's nothing that she's getting right other than pleasing her pro-abortion ideologue friends. Um, the science is well-founded. The only thing not well-founded is every word that came out of her mouth during that. Um, the, you mentioned, and I don't remember her name. She's a prominent neuroscientist. Um, Dr. Maureen Kondek. Yeah. yeah, she's yeah. an associate professor of neurobiology and anatomy at the University of Utah. And in testimony accepted before Congress, she has talked about how the perception of fetal pain you know, the, the idea of that from early, even in the first trimester, is well-founded. Yeah. Um, the cortex is not the only thing that is responsible for the perception of pain. The, mm. the most basic and elemental part is the thalamus, which is already forming at seven to eight weeks. It's a part wow. of the lower, lower part of the brain, but it's still 
part of the system that allows a fetus, allows a human to perceive pain. They may perceive it a little bit differently at eight weeks, 10 weeks, right. 12 weeks, but they still can perceive it. We know this. We know they have an intact neurologic a system that may not be mature, but it's in an intact neurologic system. Because right. at eight to 10 weeks, you can watch on ultrasound and you can see limb movements. Well, limb movements, the, the contractions of the muscle fibers in the arms and the legs, those do not occur unless there's a neural impulse coming from mm -hmm. the brain through the spinal cord to the peripheral nerves to stimulate the muscles. If there wasn't a nervous system, you wouldn't see that. But that nervous system is necessary at that point because it's that muscular movement that stimulates muscular development, that stimulates skeletal development. An intact nervous system from the, and functioning a functioning nervous system is important from the middle of the first trimester. If the baby doesn't have one, it won't develop normally. And she just totally brushes that aside and says that it's a, my, a gross minority of doctors who believe that the fetus can perceive pain before 24 weeks and that it's not well-founded. Well, the only thing gross is her opinion. <laughs> that, that's gross. What she is saying, it's, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm not being very, but neither was she, uh, and at least I'm telling the truth, and she's not. Um, another physician, and I found this um, this reference, another one of the world's top uh, neuroscientists, his name is Stuart Derbyshire. Um, previously, he opposed any discussion of the fetal perception of pain. But more recently, with research that's come out since like 2016 on, um, he recently published his opinion or his findings in a peer-reviewed journal that the perception of fetal pain may occur as early as 12 weeks. Wow. So who do we trust? A, a pro-abortion ideologue who's sitting on the court saying things that should be embarrassing to her or two of the world's top neuroscientists? That's right. Well, uh, I've been told to follow the science, Dr. Brent, so that's just uh, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to do here. But... Uh, Dr. Fauci doesn't seem to understand that. Um, just to quote Dr. Marine Condict, by the way, Dr. Brent, uh, in, in testifying before Congress in 2017, here's actually what she said. <clears throat> it is entirely uncontested in the scientific and medical liter literature that a fetus experiences pain in some capacity from as early as eight weeks. And most modern neuroscientists conclude that the thalamic circuitry that's in place by 18 weeks post-fertilization is primarily responsible for human experience of pain at all stages of life, meaning that the development of the thalamic circuitry at 18 weeks enables the child to, to my understanding, to feel the pain of dismemberment to the same degree that you and I might. Um, and so even when you talk about these pain-capable unborn child protection acts, which would ban abortion at 20 weeks, um, well, it's kind of not very helpful because it's teaching the country that that's when the baby can feel pain. But they're responding to stimuli in some capacity by as early as eight weeks. And according to a guy who didn't want to acknowledge it and which you just cited, certainly by 12 weeks. Um, so, yeah, why isn't Sotomayor following the science? Because it doesn't support her ideology. 
they, they elect, they can choose whether it's this or anything else that we, climate change, you know, <laughs> and any of the other more uh, contemporary issues that we're seeing um, used to create some fundamental changes in our society. It's that they pick and choose. Um, you shouldn't get to pick and choose. And then she also, well, I don't know if you're going to play the clip, she accuses it of just being a strictly religious position that life begins yeah. at conception. Um, we'll get to that too. Yeah. 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 Okay, I'll, I'll hold. <laughs> so Sotomayor, guys, uh, goes next level to embarrass herself. Um, it seems uh, her head is so far up um, her own rectum Dr. Brent, that it's coming out her face again. Um, she decided to make the observation that if you really think about it, and if you really follow the science, Dr. Brent, you'll know that unborn babies, are they're just kind of like brain-dead people. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and play clip two here. Virtually every state defines a brain death as death. Yet the literature is filled with episodes of people who are completely and utterly brain-dead responding to stimuli. Um, it, there's about 40% of dead people who, if you touch their feet, the foot will recoil. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that a response to, uh, by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain, or that there's consciousness. So I go back to my question of what has changed in science to show that the viability line is not a real line, that a fetus cannot survive. And I think that's what both courts below said, that you had no experts say that there is any viability before 23 to 24 months. So, uh, Dr. Brent, um, Sotomayor appears to be the only one who's brain dead here. Um, but besides that point, um, what do you say to this point? Because I've heard pro-aborts make this, this observation as well, that you know people in a vegetative state, uh, brain dead people, um, they may respond um, with sort of um, uh, unconscious activity as well. And so that doesn't prove that because the preborn can respond in certain ways that they're a person. Um, I mean, it seems pretty stupid to me, but these talking points actually do confuse and deceive people a lot. So what was your reaction to this? Well, first, brain dead people also govern. Just look at half of Congress. <laughs> uh, and the other question I have is, did the president's speechwriter start writing Sotomayor's talking points? Because I really couldn't follow the last couple of sentences. It, it just, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, I just, I don't know what to think. But um, the gross, she refers to the gross minority of doctors who believe that pain is possible for the fetus. And she uses the example of brain death to, um, to support her case. Is she aware that brain-dead organ donors still undergo general anesthesia before their organs are harvested? 
in wow. every organ donation program in wow. the country. When a person is declared brain dead and has, has been willing or his family is willing for him to be an organ donor, that person, because his body, parts of his body may still perceive the pain, they put them under a general anesthetic before harvesting their organs, even though they're brain dead. Wow. Fetuses, on a similar point, a fetus with spina bifida, or an op what's called an open neural tube defect, who undergoes in utero surgery, sometimes as early as 20 weeks, when they right. <clears throat> have the mother in the operating room, and they open her abdomen, and they open her uterus, and they lift the part of the baby out that needs the surgical correction. They administer general anesthesia to the baby before they do the surgical correction. That is also standard in every fetal surgery program in the country. Uh, so Justice Sotomayor's gross minority of physicians just happens to include every physician that operates on brain dead people and every <laughs> physician that operates on 20 week babies. That's right. Um, yep. they, and the moral premise is quite simple, right? It is, it is an act of cruelty and evil to intentionally cause harm and pain to a human being. Um, no, I'm not saying all living entities or sentient beings. I'm not talking about uh, hunting birds. Okay, I'm talking about human persons, people, human beings. It is an act of cruelty and evil to intentionally cause pain, especially when it's completely unjustified. Right? I'm not talking about like just war theory or something like that. I'm talking about an innocent human being, unjustified. And your point, I think, is a powerful one, is that we, we, uh, we distribute anesthetics to anesthesia to both the brain-dead person before their organs are harvested, as well as the pre-born in surgery to correct spina bifida, which, by the way, we've been able to do this now and put the baby back into the womb. This story, the, the, we, you hear about these stories now, and then the baby can actually be either delivered vaginally or through C-section. Phenomenal. It begs the question, if you're a person with rice when you've left your mother's body because it's her body, her choice, what if the baby's taken out, has surgery, and put back into the uterus? But anyways, pro-choicers can't answer that question. Um, but I think what Sotomayor it fails to grasp here and what you hear a lot of pro-aborts fail to grasp between the, the pre-born and those in a vegetative state or those in a coma who may not um, return to their normal state is the difference between no more versus not yet, right? So the pre-born is not yet. They have not yet fully developed all of their organs and all of their um, uh, capacities to survive on their own, to function as a cohesive uh, unit while, uh, where all of their pieces and organs are working together uh, for the cohesion and uh, function of the entity that they are. Um, this is the substance view of persons, right? Whereas the person in a coma or the vegetative state, they're in a position of no more, right? It, they will probably no more function as they used to. Um, and so you have to make a difficult decision about whether to just keep them permanently on life support in this vegetative state or just allow them to pass. That's not the same as intentionally killing a human being, especially when they're more vulnerable, they're younger, um, they're more defenseless, which you would think, think would suggest, Dr. Brent, that we have a greater obligation towards those individuals uh, to not harm them, to not kill them. So that, that to me, seemed to be the primary uh, flaw in her thinking, as, as if the pre-born baby in their mother's womb is morally equivalent to a brain-dead person. <laughs> 
just encapsulates that difference so well, the no more versus the not yet. Um, and that just very simply illustrates that you can't compare the two because they're not the same. Right. They're not even similar. They're only similar in surface appearances. They're not right. the same. Yeah. <clears throat> you can't compare those two. Uh, then additionally, you know, we know when someone is perceiving pain. Um, when someone's under a general anesthetic, if their anesthetic is getting lighter, we see changes in their vital signs, their pulse goes up, their blood pressure goes yeah. up, uh, different things happen. Well, we see those things happen with unborn children that are undergoing like a diagnostic procedure. There, there's there's a, a rare, rarely done procedure where they, um, the doctor may need to sample blood from a blood vessel inside the fetal liver. So they watch under ultrasound and they insert a needle that goes through the mother's abdomen into the uterus, into the baby, and into the liver. Now, for the baby, that would feel to an adult like a liver biopsy would. And what do we see? We see them recoil. We see them try to move away from the needle. We see their pulse rate increase. We see the pressure of their blood flow as monitored on ultrasound increasing in umbilical cord. And you know what? When you do a procedure where you put a needle into the umbilical cord, where there are no nerves, you don't see those changes. Wow. You see the changes when the needle hits the baby. You don't see it when the needle hits the cord. It, there are so many proofs of the perception of fetal pain that wow. virtually everything she said was complete nonsense. Yep. Well, it's to be expected. She, she also um, misses, the, I think, the broader moral point and philosophical point, Dr. Brent, which is that whether you can feel pain or not, your rights remain intact, right? It's not as if that we're justified in murdering people with congenital analgesia or congenital insensitivity to pain simply because they can't feel pain. I'm certainly not justified in killing you as long as I anesthetize you first so you don't feel it. Um, so your rights remain intact regardless, which uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised is lost on Sotomayor. So let's continue with Sotomayor just because she was the most verbal and also I would say the biggest liar during the hearings. Um, and this is to your point where she accused um, Scott Stewart, the Mississippi Solicitor General, of essentially just being a religious dogmatic rube, as if his belief in the science of embryology um, is purely a religious one and can't be defended in any other way. So here's clip three with Sotomayor. How is your interest anything but a religious view? Um, the issue of when life begins has been hotly debated by philosophers since the beginning of time. It's still debated in religions. Um, so when you say this is the only right that takes away from the state the ability to protect the life, that's a religious view, isn't it? Because it assumes that a fetus is life at when? You're not drawing your, when do you suggest we begin that life? So it's almost like uh, Sotomayor, Dr. Brent, views herself as a god. When do you suggest we begin that life? When do you suggest that we grant that child value? Um, I'll say one comment, then I want to get your reaction. Uh, isn't it interesting that only pro-lifers are labeled religious for their scientific claims? Why is Scott Stewart making a religious claim? 
by pointing to the science of embryology, but Sotomayor is not making a religious claim by denying the science of embryology. That seems to be far more Gnostic and a strange religious view to deny the facts in front of you than Scott Stewart, who hasn't made a single religious claim for the right to life of the child and the fact that human life begins at the moment of conception. But um, Dr. Brent, you're a doctor. You're an OBGYN. So tell us, uh, when does human life begin, and, uh, and how can you defend that without just being a religious dogmatist? Well, I can defend that point of view without using religion or faith at all, because it's well established. The science is established. Human life begins at conception. Every textbook of embryology that's used to teach the subject of human development to medical students in every medical school in the United States of America says in chapter one that human life begins at conception or human life begins at fertilization. In addition to that, every respectable uh, author, writer, scientist um, who has written in peer-reviewed journals agrees that human life begins at conception. The only people who have a difficult time answering that question are those who want to use the answer to justify killing an unborn living human being. But they're the only ones who have a hard time answering this question. If you remove that bit of philosophy from the issue, then the science is clear. And you don't need religion to, to, to justify anything, uh, because it is always wrong to kill an innocent human being. Right. Human life begins at conception, and abortion ends an innocent human life each and every time it's done. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That's it's right. a simple syllogism that uh, can be used to address almost every point that the pro-aborts make. That's what they don't, that's what America has failed to recognize. The the position on when life begins is scientific. What you do with that life is philosophical. That's right. Uh, right. Yet they claim to wear the mantle of science and blame us for religious philosophy. They're being religious. That's right. They will, you know, for any reason possible, that's playing God. That's religious. It's not religious to say that human life begins at conception when every piece of scientific evidence that's available says that. Um, I would like for your your listeners to um, write this down, to go to a website called lifenews.com, L-I-F-E-N-E-W-S, lifenews.com. And in the website's search bar, just type the number 41 and search that. It will produce an article for you that lists 41 different scientific references, either from textbooks or peer-reviewed articles or statements made by prominent people in the medical field that human life begins at conception. Uh, and they're not all pro-life people. Some right. of them are pro-choice. Some of, some of them we don't know. Uh, One of them, for example, is the doctor that did the first in vitro fertilization procedure that was successful, uh, who who said human life, this this life begins at conception. So lifenews.com, search for the number 41, and you'll get an article with 41 references on how Justice Sotomayor is out of her mind. That's right. Well, on that point, uh, let's have some fun, Dr. Brent. I'm going to fly through some um, medical text and proof to make the point life being is a conception uh, just for the listeners who may tune in 
who are on the fence or pro-choice, uh, you need to recognize uh, what a lying abortion hack Sotomayor is. But before I do, Dr. Brent, she kind of gives away the game, doesn't she? She says, how is your interest anything but a religious view? The issue of when human life begins has been hotly debated by philosophers since the beginning of time. And then she said, it's still debated in religion. Oops, Sotomayor, oops, oops, you gave away the game. You just told us what you're really communicating, which is that you're making a philosophical claim. You know these human beings are human beings. They have human DNA. They have human parents. All living things reproduce after their own kind. What you're saying is, is the question of whether they have value or not has been debated since the beginning of time, whether they're quote unquote persons. And your party, the Democrat party, because she's not supposed to be have political affiliations as a Supreme Court justice, but she obviously does. Your party once believed that not all humans are persons, and they believe it again today. So she gives away the game by saying it's been hotly debated by philosophers. Yes, you understand it's a philosophical question as to when human beings have value, if they do, and whether they're persons. But here is the science of embryology for our listeners. Keith L. Moore in his textbook, The Developing Human, says, human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete or oocyte to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized titipotent cell marked the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. 1975, pathology of the fetus and the infant. Quote, every time a sperm cell and ovum unite, a new human being is created, which is alive and will continue to live unless its death is brought about by some specific condition. 2006, Langman's medical embryology. Development begins with fertilization, the process during which the male gamete, the sperm, and the female gamete, the oocyte, unite to give rise to a zygote. And Freudy who's the CEO of the largest independent abortion provider in the UK, admitted in a 2008 debate the following. We can accept that the embryo is a living thing. In the fact that it has a beating heart, that it has its own genetic system within it, it's clearly human in the sense that it's not a gerbil, and we can recognize that it is human life. Peter Singer, Practical Ethics, 1993, the philosopher who defends killing infants through one year old, said, whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes and the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs as a human being. David Boonin, in his book, A Defense of Abortion, in 2003, said, a human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage in his or her development. And then lastly, in 1981, a United, States, uh, a United States Senate Judiciary Subcommittee received the following testimony from a collection of medical experts. Here were some of them. Dr. Jeremy Leguin, a professor of genetics at the University of Descartes, said after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. It is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. It is plain experimental evidence. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception. Dr. Watson A. Bowes, University of Colorado Medical School, the beginning of a single human life is, from a biological point of view, a simple and straightforward matter. The beginning is conception. And lastly, Dr. Jaime Gordon, a professor of medical genetics and a physician at the prestigious Mayo Clinic, said, I think we can now also say that the question of the beginning of life, when it begins, is no longer a question for theological or philosophical dispute. It is an established scientific fact. Theologians and philosophers may go on to debate the meaning of life or the purpose of life, but it is an established fact that all life, including human life, begins at the moment of conception. There you go, Sotomayor, you anti-science bigot. Um, who creates classes of humans, persons, and human non-persons, so you can justify murdering those that you deny personhood to. 
So I thought that would be fun. Um, Sotomayor um, goes on, Dr. Brent, to, um, to weave a web of lies that you were uniquely positioned to discredit and respond to, uh, given your profession and your study about these claims. So in this clip, Sotomayor makes the uh, uh, childbirth is 14 times more dangerous than abortion lie. So let's play uh, clip four here with Sotomayor. When does the life of a woman and putting her at risk enter the calculus? Meaning, right now, forcing women who are poor, and that's 75% of the population, and much higher percentage of those women in Mississippi who elect abortions before viability, they are put at a tremendously greater risk of medical complications and ending their life, 14 times greater to give birth to a child full term than it is to have an abortion before viability. And now the state is saying to these women, we can choose not only to physically complicate your existence, put you at medical risk, make you poorer by the choice, because we believe what? Yeah, we believe what? What, what do you believe, Scott Stewart, you stupid pro-lifer? This makes no sense. Why would you make women not kill their children? So we've addressed this before, Dr. Brennan, on the show, but um, I think a lot more people will tune into this than normal given um, the, um, the moment that we're in with Roe versus Wade. So let's discuss this. Um, you hear this a lot, and people fall for it. Um, and moderates fall for it. Some who might not like abortion at all stages of pregnancy, but they say, but I, you know, I don't want to sacrifice women on the altar of my pro-life ideology. And I read this thing, you know, and it said that abortion is 14 times safer, that childbirth is 14 times more dangerous than uh, abortion. I, I also care about the mom who's a woman, and I don't want to kill all the babies, but, you know, we shouldn't force women to endanger or harm their own lives through pregnancy if they want an abortion, particularly at a later term. So how is she making this claim? And is it factual? And if it's not, what's wrong with this claim that, um, that pro-life laws place women at 14 times greater risk through pregnancy than abortion would? Well, yes, we, you and I have addressed this before, and your, your listeners should go back and find that episode and listen to it, because we did a great more bit of detail uh, during that episode than we'll be able to, to take the time to today. Um, you have to ask yourself, is it possible to compare the death rate from childbirth to the death rate from abortion? Yes, that's possible. But the way the statistics have to be done is you have to look at everyone who died as a result of a delivery and everyone who died as a result of an abortion and look link those death certificates to all treatment for any treatment during a uh, for a pregnancy. And does that sort of data set exist in the United States? It does not. So it's not possible for a writer, an author, a researcher to make that claim legitimately based on data from the United States of America. We know from data from Finland, and this is well published, several articles, 
uh, because medicine is completely socialized in Finland, because every visit, for whatever reason, is billed as for what the purpose of the visit was and what the diagnosis was. So you can go into the data and you can look at the death certificates for all reproductive age women, and you can see how many of them delivered a baby, how many of them had an abortion, how many of them died after a miscarriage or two pregnancy. So you can see everyone who died as a result of a pregnancy or a pregnancy intervention. And then knowing how many deaths there were, knowing how many women were treated for those things, you have good, solid, verifiable, indisputable data where you can compare the risk of death with childbirth and the risk of death with abortion. Abortion has, across the board, at all gestational ages, has a mortality risk that is four times higher than the risk of dying from childbirth. And, of course, that risk is lowest with an abortion at the beginning of pregnancy and highest with an abortion at the end, after viability, after 15 weeks, which is what this ban is about, the 15-week ban. The data that, that she's quoting that says, oh, well, it's 14 times safer than childbirth, comes from a trash article written by two abortionists um, that uses data in the United States comparing known mortality rates for delivery versus estimated mortality rates from abortion. And in the article, they claim to have data on abortion complications and mortality from all 50 states. That's an outright lie. There is no such data set. 22 states... In the United States of America, report no data on abortion deaths or complications to the CDC. That minority of states, 22 out of 50, actually has 57 or 58 percent of the nation's abortions and does do almost 60 percent of the nation's abortions. So a majority of the abortion clinics and the majority of the abortions performed in America are done in states that don't report data. So our, the data, at best, is incomplete. You cannot make any conclusion on the risk of abortion. You cannot make a conclusion that abortion is safe based on that data. You simply can't. And then of the 28 states that do report complications and mortalities, there's no enforcement mechanism that requires the abortion industry to comply with that reporting. Right. So we know, we know that there is no such data set. Additionally... The authors of that paper had access to the data from Finland, but they excluded it because it would it messed with what their conclu- they wanted their conclusion. Yeah. So they didn't they didn't include that data. There's also a database of that's not kept for the purposes of abortion, but it's kept for the purposes of tracking Medicaid expenditures in California. Um, and a, re- a review of the database of 174,000 Medicaid women in California shows an elevated risk of death after an abortion compared to childbirth. Wow. Also, an elevated risk of suicide and depression and other problems after an abortion. Um, they excluded that data set as well. Wow. <laughs> they, they, they did. It was available. They knew about it. They had to know about it. And they excluded it. So the whole statement, every time you hear somebody say abortion is safer than childbirth, it is a lie. The person who's quoting that either knows it's a lie and is a liar or they're ignorant and they're just repeating what they've been told. Um, 
it, it's so simple. Um, wow. the, and as you've mentioned before, Dr. Brent, that the people who would report that would be the people who performed the abortion. Um, yeah. but many women don't return to the abortionist who they often had a bad experience with to report complications. Often you, the OBGYN, will learn about those complications. Um, yes. But then those aren't included in the data set either. So that's, that's incredibly helpful. Um, what, right. what a lie. For purposes of time, we'll, we'll keep cranking through this. So uh, this one is from Elena Kagan, Dr. Brent. <clears throat> and she wasn't, excuse me, she wasn't very vocal or active, um, which surprised me given how compromised she is as an abortion activist. Um, but she weaves some of the typical euphemisms um, on abortion, which all, uh, not ironically, filter out of sight the existence of the very <clears throat> human being that we're discussing that's in question, which is whether preborn women, preborn children, uh, have a right to life as well. Um, but boy, is she trained in the lexicon um, and linguistics of the left. So let's go ahead and play this Kagan clip. That, we want you to discard the viability line, which you've acknowledged again today. Casey says is the, the heart, the central principle of Roe. And so uh, usually there has to be a justification, a strong justification in a case like this, beyond the fact that you think the case is wrong. And I guess what strikes me when I look at this case is that you know, not much has changed since Roe and Casey, that people think it's right or wrong based on the things that they have always thought it was right and wrong for. So the, 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 the rationale behind those cases uh, has something to do with the autonomy and the freedom and the dignity of women to pursue their lives as they wish, to protect their bodily integrity to make the decisions that are most fundamental to the course of their lives. And, and always in those cases, there was an understanding that there were important interests on the other side in protecting life or protecting the potential for life, whether people saw it one way or the other way, and that there was a difficult question here and a balance to be made. And I mean, it strikes me that people, some people think those decisions made the right balance and some people thought they made the wrong balance. But in the end, we are in the same exact place as we were then, except that we're not because there's been 50 years of water under the bridge, 50 years of decisions saying that this is part of our law, that this is part of the fabric of women's existence in this country. And that that places us in an entirely different situation than if you had come in 50 years ago and made the same arguments. So um, I'm not sure what any of that meant, uh, but boy, is she, is she skilled um, with utilizing the language of false compassion to make her point. But what I came away from this from Dr. Brent was primarily her ability to filter out of sight um, any recognition of a separate human being bearing injuries that are fatal. Um, and her statements so ironically refuse to recognize that there could be a pre-born woman um, whose fabric of existence we should also take into account. Uh, so my initial questions for 
Kagan were, doesn't abortion prevent preborn women from pursuing their lives? Um, when does a woman's bodily integrity begin? And does the fabric of women's existence refer to all women or just some women? Um, and so she's very gifted, obviously, at what she does. Um, but what was your takeaway from Kagan's sort of mystery paragraph here? She spoke extensively about balance and stricken, and she, you know, uh, between the rights of the woman and the potential rights of an unborn child, and I'm paraphrasing, but that, that's where she was going with that, speaking as if there was some balance that had already been stricken, and that some people like it and some people don't, uh, but it was that there is a balance there. What right. balance? What balance? What piece of judicial legislation on the federal level since 1973 has done anything but continue to affirm the fact that you could use overly broad so-called health exceptions to justify killing a baby all the way up to the due date? Uh, there's no balance there. Um, and, and the other side isn't interested in balance. That's right. You know, you could, as a pro-life person, debate with them and say, okay, let me, um, let me give you, um, you give me the fact that we'll let exceptions for rape and incest happen and we'll let exceptions for the life of the mother and that kind of stuff happen if you'll agree to say that other elective abortions are, are not going to be allowed. And they won't strike a balance with you on that. Right. They're not in balance. They're interested in abortion all the way to the due date for any reason whatsoever at any point in time uh, and completely ignore all the science that, talk, that shows that this really is a living human being and ignore all of the data that talks about the danger to women, particularly as abortion occurs later and later in pregnancy. Um, there's no balance there, so I don't know what she's talking about. But we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, she's the one who created a falsehood that's been perpetuated in the federal courts uh, in conjunction with the American College of OBGYN on partial birth abortion never being necessary. So right. she's not credible. Uh, yeah. We did an episode about that as well. Um, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Um, let's, let's look briefly at Thomas and Alito. Um, uh, and let's try to do this brief because uh, we actually want people to listen to the whole thing. And uh, we know there's a lot to cover here. But Clarence Thomas, Dr. Brent, um, I've long said is the most conservative member of the Supreme Court or, or the truest version of, of a constitutionalist. Um, an originalist is the language that's used um, in today's jurisprudence. And he asked a very interesting question. And you could tell Clarence Thomas was the most known nonsense of the justices, particularly of, in his questioning of Julie Reichelman from the Center for Reproductive Rights that was uh, suing Mississippi. So he asked an interesting question here, Dr. Brent. Let's play clip six. Counsel, um, I just have one question. I assume you, uh, from your brief, you're relying on uh, an autonomy theory both uh, bodily integrity and the ability to make decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, Your Honor. Um, shortly, some years after we decided Casey, uh, we had a case out of South Carolina, I believe, 
involved a woman who had been convicted of criminal child neglect because she ingested cocaine during pregnancy. Uh, in her case was post-viability, so it doesn't fit in the facts of this case. If she had ingested cocaine pre-viability and had the same negative consequences to her child, do you think the state had an interest in enforcing that law against her? The state may have, Your Honor. The state can certainly regulate to serve its interests in fetal life and in women's health. Those particular laws tend to undermine both of those interests because they deter women from seeking prenatal care, which is counterproductive to both their but health. But the pre-viability as well as post-viability? No, Your Honor. The, the court has been clear that after viability, states can prohibit abortion except to save No, I mean, the, the in my example of criminal child neglect. I understand you. your argument is about abortion. I am trying to look at the issue of bodily autonomy and whether or not she has a right also to bodily autonomy in the case of ingesting uh, an illegal substance and causing harm to a pre-viability fetus. Your Honor, of course, those issues aren't posed in this case. And again, I would say that the states can certainly regulate throughout pregnancy, both before and after viability, um, to preserve uh, fetal life and to preserve the woman's health. The court has said, however, there's, there are other constitu constitutional issues at stake, for instance, in the Ferguson case, um, that states still can't violate women's Fourth Amendment rights. But again, that's not what this case is about. This case is about a ban on abortion that the state concedes is weeks before viability and the court has been clear for 50 years that the one thing that states cannot do is to take the decision completely away from the woman until viability. That until that point, it is her decision to make, given the unique physical demands of pregnancy and the life-altering consequences of pregnancy and having a child. Thank you. Clarence Thomas, uh, full thug life. Huh? Uh, what a troll. Um, but does it so <laughs> professionally and so well. Um, it's an interesting question, Dr. Brent, right? Um, if, uh, if a woman has the bodily autonomy, to use autonomy in such a way that murders her own preborn child through abortion, why can't she have that same bodily autonomy to use whatever type of substances or drugs that she wants to during pregnancy um, that may lead to harm for her child and then uh, suffering that child's whole life after birth because of how they were harmed in the womb. In other words, if a woman can intentionally kill her unborn child under the mantle of bodily autonomy, why can't she intentionally harm, but not kill, her unborn child through drug use while pregnant? Isn't that bodily autonomy as well? Um, what was your reaction to Clarence Thomas here? Uh, he did a brilliant job showing, exposing the uh the indefensible nature of her argument and and she slipped there and i haven't heard anybody talk about this yet but she really slipped um she she opposes drug prosecution for pregnant women because that will make it less likely that drug addicts will seek prenatal care well, why is it important for people to seek prenatal care because there's a living human being whose health depends on getting good prenatal care. So she just acknowledged 
that there are living human beings who, who depend on us to make good prenatal care possible. So if that's the case, then why is it also okay to kill them if they're not wanted? She, she, just, she just exposed one of the glaring double standards, one of the most essential elements of hypocrisy on the abortion side of this argument. She acknowledged that there are, there is a human being whose life is on the line, whose vital interests are at stake in each and every pregnancy decision, whether it's a prenatal care decision or an abortion decision. She exposed that truth yeah. without even yeah. realizing she was doing it. That's wild. In fact, uh, before we move to Thomas again, Dr. Brent, I covered this a year, a year and a half ago or more. There was a case in Colorado, the Colorado Supreme Court, uh, a year and a half, two years ago, where a man was charged with child abuse um, because his daughter, um, who's now several years old, had physical harm because she was shot with a bullet in the womb. So this dad sh shot his pregnant girlfriend, okay, killed his wife, and then the baby survived and was born and is now alive and going to survive, but has significant, uh, was maimed significantly and harmed because of the gunshot to her prenatal body. He got off without child abuse charges. And the reasoning by the Colorado Supreme Court was that essentially, Dr. Brett, if the baby had died as a result of, of the injuries, then he could have been charged with child abuse. But because the baby survived, he couldn't be charged with child abuse. So he had the right to harm his preborn child with a gun, but not kill his preborn child with a gun, which is similar to what Reichelman's saying here, right? Apparently, you, can, you, uh, you can't use drugs to harm your kid, um, or I guess it's the flip side of that. She's saying you can't use drugs to harm your kid, but you can kill your kid in the womb. Uh, so anyways, these are, this is the, I guess, where you, the conclusion from the premises of progressivism. Very strange indeed. Um, here's uh, Clarence Thomas again, Dr. Brent, um, asking Julie Reichelman, uh, where exactly is the right to abortion? So let's play clip seven. I, I know your interest here is in abortion. I understand that. But if I were to ask you what constitutional right protects the right to abortion? Um, is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What would it be? It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a previability pregnancy. So it's all of the above. Well, the, that's how the court has interpreted the Liberty Clause for over 100 years in cases going back to Meyer, Griswold, Carey, Loving, Lawrence. Yeah, but uh, I mean, all of those sort of just come out of Lochner. Uh, the, so it's the, we, we've dropped part of it. So I understand what you're saying. But what I'm trying to focus on is if we is to lower the level of generality or at least be a little bit more specific. In the old days, we used to say it was a right to privacy that the court found in the uh, due process, substantive due process clause, okay? So, or in substantive due process. And I'm trying to get you to tell me what are we relying on now? Is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What is it? 
I think it continues to be liberty. It continues to be liberty, Dr. Brent. Um, I'll give you my hot take on this, and then I actually want your response to um, the viability as the turn point here, uh, I think, really for the pro-aborts. But I think the response is your liberty ends where my nose begins. Uh, your, your liberty ends where the natural rights of another human being begin. And what could be more fundamental than the right to life? Uh, to quote Lincoln, nobody has the right to do a wrong. Uh, and if abortion is not wrong, uh, then nothing is. But Alito came in, Dr. Brent, asking Rickleman as well, uh, a phenomenal question. He just said, what's your best case to, to Julie Reichelman? What's your best case for what you're arguing today? So here's Alito in clip eight, and I want to get your response to this, Dr. Brent. What's your best case? For the right to end a pregnancy, Your Honor? Mm -hmm. um, allowing a state to take control of a woman's body and force her to undergo the physical demands, risks, and life-altering consequences of pregnancy is a fundamental deprivation of her liberty. And once the court recognizes that that liberty interest deserves heightened protection, it does need to draw a workable line. And viability is a line that logically balances the interests at stake. So she had that rehearsed. Um, that was incredibly succinct. And I do appreciate her honesty. Um, but she gets to the main point, Dr. Brent, which is viability. Um, this has always been the major focus in the jurisprudential wars of abortion. Um, and the courts decided that viability was a substantive um, enough uh, factor or line, Dr. Brent, that states could be allowed to ban abortion after viability, but not before. So wh what is it about this thing called viability that carries such moral weight such that it gets enshrined in our legal system? And, and as a state, you can ban abortion after viability, but not before. So viability, as the word has been used in United States constitutional law since Roe, is the potential of the fetus to survive outside the uterus after birth, natural or induced, when supported by up-to-date medicine. Um, and so what was your takeaway here with her response, that viability is a line that balances the interests at stake? And why do you believe um, they focus so much on viability in, in the language and strategical positioning of the abortion behemoth and industry? They use that because it is the most, or I should say the least controversial point at which they can achieve an arbitrary distinction. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really not scientific. The, the diagnosis of life is either you're alive or you're not. But fetal, the viability standard is just, it's not a diagnosis of whether you're a living human being or not. It's a prognostic assessment of your chances for survival if delivered prematurely uh, and is not a value-giving difference in any way. That is just as much a week before viability as it is a week after viability. And, and she continues in the language of Roe in that she only wishes to discuss the um, interests of the woman versus the interests of the state to regulate abortion and refuses to acknowledge that there's a third party involved. Uh, and the same thing in Roe. And she talks about liberty and she points to the 14th Amendment and, and wants to really hang her hat on that. Um, and that to me is just, it's infuriating. You know, in 1857, this, this same Supreme Court said that black people weren't really people who deserved 
to have any rights or protections whatsoever, that they could be owned as slaves and treated like property and had no rights. Well, we fought a civil war and then still had to pass three constitutional amendments to fix that piece of jurisprudential malpractice. Uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are what guaranteed for black people that they have the same rights as everybody else. But then they used that 14th Amendment and its so-called liberty protections in 1973 to say that, well, there's a different class of people that aren't really people and don't have rights and can be treated like property and disposed of by their owners in any way they wish. Um, and that is just incredibly wrong. And, and America needs to see that and understand that. Because when we talk about our being a nation of laws and of justice, there's nothing just about this. Yeah. They, she talks about liberty and calls it a liberty. But each and every time, when, when a liberty, a so-called liberty, if, if each and every time such a so-called liberty is exercised, it takes an innocent human life away from them without due process, it is not a liberty. It is a tyranny. Yeah. What a, how ironic, Dr. Brent, that she appeals to a decision that recognized the personhood of all humans to argue against the personhood of all humans. Uh, very interesting. Regarding viability, Dr. Brent, here's, here's a fun doozy, okay, for our leftist friends in the pro-abortion movement. Um, by making viability a decisive moment in which a baby can maybe valuable enough for individual states to protect, you end up with strange conclusions such as human value being dependent upon geography. So for example, a fetus in a modern New York City neonatal unit may be viable at 21 weeks, while one in rural Africa might not make it until 35 weeks. Or suppose a pregnant female carrying a 22-week fetus begins a journey at JFK, then flies to rural South America. Does her fetus start the journey with a right to life but lose it once the plane leaves American airspace? because now mom doesn't have access to the type of life-giving medical care that would enable the baby to be viable in South Africa that she would in New York City. Very strange how human rights, uh, how you can lose human rights depending on what country you're in, Dr. Brent. Um, but I think that's the stupidity of viability. And I agree with you, the primary reason they focus on viability as a balancing of interests is because they know that that's strategic and more Americans will get on board with the pro-choice um, position and line um, if they can say, well, when the baby can survive by itself, we'll let it live, but when it can't, we'll kill it because it's dependent on mom and we don't want to burden mom with being forced to raise a child. That's a perceived as a moderate position in the culture, whereas if they were honest that they support killing babies through point of birth, less Americans would support their agenda and vote for the politicians who lynch their neighbors. Um, on that point, I want to play one clip. I had two here initially, but let's just play one. Uh, regarding viability. In 2019, at a U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Government Reforms Proceedings, Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky questioned Planned Parenthood abortionist Colleen McNichols, who's the chief medical officer for Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and Southwest Missouri, and he questioned her on the concept of viability and asked her, what is the age of viability? So let's play clip nine as, as this is exposed for what it is. Uh, Dr. McNicholas, what's the medical consensus for age of viability of a fetus? 
I appreciate the question. So viability is a complicated uh, medical construct. There is no particular gestational age. Um, there are some pregnancies in which a fetus will never be viable. There are a number of different factors that we think about uh, when we're considering if a pregnancy is or isn't viable. So what, is there a legal consensus on the age of viability? Not to my understanding, but I'm a physician, not a lawyer. So no medical or legal consensus on what viability is, Dr. Brent, from the Chief Medical Officer for Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region in Southwest Missouri. In that interaction later, um, she actually says that viability could be at any point. She actually says that to Representative Thomas Massey. So it's just a subjective um, term to be used uh, to uh, indoctrinate the public into the abortion ideology. But viability only measures the state of our current technology, not the status of the fetus. Um, but our, you, you guys listening to this, you need to understand there, that viability is the debate and argument in Dobbs versus Jackson. Can states ban abortion before vi viability? Um, and I hope you see how stupid viability is, because even an infant is not fully viable in the sense it can't survive on, on its own. Um, neither would born people dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, or life support. They're not fully viable if you apply that term to mean able to survive completely on your own. Um, but it's a way of indoctrinating the public into their position. Uh, and then Amy Coney Barrett, as we wrap up, Dr. Brent, um, you know, the Catholic, we were all excited to get onto the court um, and, and who we're hoping will we'll vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, she took an interesting approach here. She talked about safe haven laws. Um, and how women can just safely surrender their children in um, all of the states, such as at a fire station, um, and then that baby can go into the foster care, be adopted, and um, there's more parents wanting to adopt newborns than there are newborns available to be adopted. Um, and so, hey, let's, you know, by banning abortion at 15 weeks, we're not forcing you to be a mother. You can surrender the child after birth, and then you don't have to be a mother. So, hey, so here's... Um, Clip 11 with Amy Coney Barrett taking a very interesting line of questioning. Seems to me, seen in that light, both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities, it's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem. It seems to me that it focuses the burden much more narrowly. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, you know, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. Um, however, it doesn't seem to me to follow that pregnancy and then parenthood are all part of the same burden. And so it seems to me that the choice more focused would be between, say, the ability to get an abortion at 23 weeks or the state requiring the woman to go 15, 16 weeks more, and then terminate parental rights at the conclusion. Why, why didn't you address the safe haven laws, and why don't they matter? I, I think they don't matter for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, um, even if some of those laws are new since Casey, the idea that a woman could place a child up for adoption has, of course, been true since Roe. So it's a consideration that the court already had before it when it decided those cases and adhered to the viability line. But in addition, um, we don't just focus on the burdens of parenting, and neither did Roe and Casey. Instead, pregnancy itself is unique. It imposes unique physical demands and risk on women, and in fact has 
impact on all of their lives and their ability to care for other children, other family members, on their ability to work. Um, and in particular, in Mississippi, those risks are alarmingly high. It's 75 times more dangerous to give birth in Mississippi than it, uh, than it is to have a pre-viability abortion, and those risks are disproportionately threatening the lives of women of color. So there it is, Dr. Brent. According to Julie Reichelman, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is not only a racist, um, but she also wants pregnant women to die. <laughs> she says 75 times more likely uh, in Mississippi to give birth than to have a pre-viability abortion. That's like four or five-fold on the 14 times greater. And then she says, and that's going to disproportionately fall on black people. Why are you such a racist, Amy Coney Barrett? <laughs> that sounds like typical leftist trope here. Um, we've already discredited the whole thing about abortion being safer than childbirth. Um, but it's an interesting approach here. You can surrender the child through a safe haven law, uh, but Julie Reichelman says, no, we need abortion because uh, child, childbirth is more dangerous than abortion. Um, what were your thoughts on, on this and the fact that um, the pro-life movement hasn't used that line of argumentation as much? You don't hear that one as much about, hey, you say uh, you, that you, we can't have pro-life laws because it forces mothers to be parents. No, we're not forcing you to be a parent. You, you get the deliver the baby, you know, you can keep working while you're pregnant and then someone will adopt it or you can surrender it at a fire station. What did you think about that? That's again, it's uh, it totally ignores the issue that there's there is a child on the line uh, with with the abortion decision. The the 75 times greater risk of childbirth. Again, you pointed out and it's accurate that is based on the fallacious 14-fold increase in the risk uh, article we discussed earlier, combined with the fact that Mississippi's population has a um, higher rate of maternal mortality due to poverty and other things uh, in the state of Mississippi. But what also follows that no one will, ex will admit is that those same things increase the woman's risk of complications and death from abortions. Because if they can't access the healthcare system supremely well for pregnancy, then they don't for abortion complications either. So mm -hmm. there's an increased risk for women to have an abortion in the state of Mississippi. Uh, so when, when someone wants to argue their case like that and they want to say things like that, but they are making arguments that are so easily and provably false, then what is deserving of consideration in their case? Nothing, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Wow. Powerfully put. Um, it, was, it was encouraging, though, to hear the more conservative justices, um, I think, resort to a hard line of questioning against um, those suing Mississippi. Um, that is encouraging and maybe indicative of how they will rule. Uh, Dr. Brent, you've got to get off and go uh, either deliver babies or love on patients as the good doctor that you are. So we'll bid you goodbye, but thanks for joining us. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, guys. Um, well, guys, uh, as, you, as we close out the show here today, um, I, I've been asked a lot, is Roe versus Wade going to be overturned? Is the Supreme Court going to overturn Roe versus Wade? Um, and I can't confidently give you an answer on that. Um, we had a Republican-appointed Supreme Court majority in 73, and in 92 with Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and we were let down um, both 
times. However, the political moment we're living in seems to be a lot more tense, which either means you're going to get more cowardice or more courage. Um, either the justices are going to fold like a cheap suit, except for Clarence Thomas, or they're really going to rise to the occasion in this moment. Um, and that would forever be as a result of how God used President Trump to get three Supreme Court justices on the court um, who decided to be courageous and protect life. We certainly need to be praying for that, but we need to recognize the moment that we're in, what time it is, and the threats that are increasingly building against Christians, pro-lifers, and the pro-life movement, which always, of course, means threats against the pre-born child. But if, tho if, if those who protect the pre-born cannot contend safely and freely in the public square, uh, then we really are in deep doo-doo, and we may never end abortion in a free manner in this country. I've told you, you got Newsom trying to um, stop people from sidewalk counseling outside of abortion centers in California if that abortion center happens to do vaccines. Uh, he signed a bill saying no filming outside of abortion centers for sidewalk counselors so they can't protect themselves. And MSNBC recently just compared being pro-life with being pro-segregation. We'll play the clip another time. We, we, we have to close out the show. But here would be the question. If pro-lifers are the moral equivalent of racists who support segregation, then it's reasonable to ask the question, how long until the left begins to treat us like racist segregationists if being pro-life and contending for the life of the child makes us the equivalent of racist? And I think the answer is uh, not very long until we're actually treated like that. And we may be moving towards civil war in our country. And if Roe v. Wade is overturned, you're going to get riots in the street like you've never seen before. It'll make BLM look mild because this is their greatest sacrament. We need to be preparing for that, praying for that, and praying that the church will finally rise up and assert her spiritual duty to contend in the public square to get godly men and women elected who will, who will respect their only job description, which is to protect the life, liberty, and property of American citizens. Well, we'll see you next week. Thank you guys so much for joining the show. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Hey!